Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this IFG live event. I'm Joe Marshall, senior researcher at the Institute and one of the authors of our recent report, uh, Agriculture After Brexit, Replacing the Cap. In 2017, then Environment Secretary Michael Gove called Brexit an unfrozen moment, which would allow ministers to address long-standing criticisms of the EU common agricultural policy and free the government to radically reform the way it supports agriculture and the natural environment in England. But evolved governments are going in slightly different directions to slightly slower pace. The Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, or DEFRA, has embarked on a seven-year programme to spend England's £2.4 billion annual cap budget very differently, moving away from paying primarily for owning land to paying for the delivery of largely environmental public goods in pursuit of the government's climate and nature goals. These are huge reforms and will mean big changes for many farmers. And they're happening at a time when the sector is already experiencing turbulence from other impacts of Brexit, like the end of free movement, new barriers to trade with the EU and freshly signed trade deals. And now from soaring inflation, only worsened by the war in Ukraine. And just today, the government is announcing a range of measures to help reduce the need for artificial fertiliser, the price of which is driven by the high cost of natural gas. So this morning, we will be exploring whether or not the government's reforms are on track and can deliver everything that farmers, environmentalists and taxpayers expect, and how its plans for agriculture sit alongside its wider policy agenda, what, if anything, the renewed attention on food security should mean for the reforms. To discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by an excellent panel. We've got Jonathan Baker, Deputy Director in the Future Farming and Countryside Programme in DEFRA, who has the easy job of delivering these ambitious reforms. Minette Batters, President of the National Farmers Union, representing more than 46,000 farming and growing businesses across the country, and herself a farmer in Wiltshire. Sue Pritchard, Chief Executive of the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission, which seeks to bring together a range of voices to identify practical actions to benefit the climate, nature, health and the economy and incidentally, neighbour to the mum of former head of the IFG's Brexit team, it's a very small world. And finally, but last but not least, Becky Spate, Chief Executive of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, the RSPB, the UK's largest nature conservation charity. Before we get going, just a bit of housekeeping. This event is on the record and a recording will be available afterwards. My colleague Dan is live tweeting from the at IFG events account, but please do tweet along using the hashtag IFGBrexit. We also want to hear from you, so please make sure you send in your questions using the function on Teams. Please remember to keep them short and snappy, and if someone has asked a question that you would like answered, please like it so I know that it's popular and I'll try to bring in as many as possible throughout the event. Right, that is enough for me. Um, I'm going to turn to our panel now. I know there's obviously a lot of attention at the moment about food security, and domestic production, the impact of inflation. I really want to get on to some of those interesting topical questions later in the event, but I'm going to start by digging into the reforms that DEFRA are making. And Jonathan, I'm going to give you the first word here. It would be great if you could sort of give us a sense of where we are with these reforms, sort of what's keeping you and your team busy, what can we expect over uh, the next few weeks and months from the reforms? Hi, right, thanks Joe, thanks everyone. So I think the reforms are, are really interesting and, and quite a um, kind of crunchy moment. So we've moved from a position around 2018, as you described, where we were putting out a set of policy announcements, which are fairly, you know, um, uh, kind of policy oriented, fairly high level, quite strategic. 
we're now in a position where we've already about to start the second year of the agricultural transition and we're we're moving through that delivery process now so we're moving into that much more detailed process um, so for example we've got the sustainable farming incentive pilot live we've got some of our other um, um, farm support programs so our grant offers our research and development offers are already live and in flight we've got some of our other transitional offers such as the farming protected landscapes or the farm resilience program which are about supporting farmers make these changes all live as well at the moment so we're learning from those making them better and we're preparing for the next phase the thing that we're now looking to drive towards which is really keeping us busy is the sustainable farming incentive so this is the first of our um, our environmental land management schemes which uh, we will be we put out the more guidance documents today the detail of that that uh, that will be live um, across the late spring and early summer so really driving towards that so supporting the launch of that scheme getting the communication right these are voluntary schemes so we need to make sure farmers understand how they work for them what the blockers are so we're driving towards that um, and then my role is fairly strategic so working with our policy colleagues at quite a high level so one of the aspects that we're doing is making sure that with our policy our medium and long-term policy plans are still lined up with gov government policy so there's a recent target consultation around environmental targets so we've obviously been deeply involved at that beginning of the process because we're delivering a huge amount of environmental targets through these reforms but that's an area of work constantly making sure okay can we fine-tune our reforms to make sure we're best achieving those goals and then the other kind of strand of the work is kind of talking to people getting out there and sharing insights so we're doing that internationally because we're really proud of our reforms and we wish to advocate that as part of kind of UK um, kind of soft power uh, we also work across the UK with the rest of the Gulf nations through the agriculture, UK Agriculture Partnership, which my team lead on. It seems really interesting sharing of insights about how different countries are approaching the, the freedoms of EU exit. And then kind of most excitingly is getting preparing to get, get out and about. So we've got the agriculture shows coming, which my team again lead on. So preparing for that and the opportunity to go out and talk to talk to farmers in particular about, about these changes. So that's kind of where we are now, this interesting moment where we've gone from level policy documents and now crunching through into the detail of delivery and people can start to see what the, the specifics look like. Great thanks Jonathan that is uh, great to get a sense of it and it sounds like you're very busy and just very quickly I might come back to you just on a, a question that's already come in I mean we framed this event as sort of you know, taking back control of agriculture sort of a Brexit dividend point and so how much of the reforms do you think genuinely are things that are new that we couldn't have done within the sort of common agricultural policy framework or how much of it is more sort of you know Brexit provided a political moment and the government chose to do something different even if it could have done some of the similar things in the EU? I think it's a good question I think I so often kind of play counterfactuals in my head if we were still within the farm to fork strategy which is the EU strategy what would we look like um, and there are elements that we can see which have always been inherent in the English position, in particular around reform, so being quite un uncomfortable with the direct payment policy, being more enthusiastic about the targeted schemes. So I think we were always perhaps at the vanguard of that, uh, of those aspects. But what did change with the, the obviously the leaving the EU is um, created that political moment uh, to, to really highlight and kind of seize on these opportunities. Um, and then it created that, that great, the greater degree of freedom. To, to make those changes at a real scale. So I think we're spending around our, our agri-environment scheme, we've seen really popular demand from farmers. The level of spend we're spending on um, is higher than we would have been crudely allowed to within the, the common agricultural policy because that was there was a fixed around the, the modularity of the, the subsidy pillar and the other pillar. So we're definitely seeing a significant change. And if you look forward, it's a very radical level of change across the rest of to 2028, which is not comparable with what they're doing in 
in the, in the EU. Again, we've got different circumstances, not sort of comparing, contrasting adversely, but we're responding to different circumstances. And the one thing that does unlock really um, is with, by repurposing that level of investment, it gives you much more confidence to, to be ambitious from an environmental and from a net zero perspective and from a farming productivity perspective, because you've got a lot more freedom, got a lot more funding to, to focus on. And I don't think you would have seen a decarbonisation strategy last year or the environmental targets that are alive at the moment without this reform to agricultural policy, because it's hard to see where you've got that level of levers that you can pull on without fully deploying the ability of farmers to deliver these really good outcomes. Great. Thanks, Jonathan. That's really, uh, really helpful. Um, I mean, Jonathan's talked about bare the sort of radical reforms that are being made. Minette, I'm going to turn to you next. Um, I mean, we start to see a lot more detail of the new reforms over the last few months. Jeff has been publishing a lot of information. Um, but we know from the sort of last farm opinion tracker, which admittedly came out, it covers October 2021, I think, so before these announcements, we saw that actually there had seemed to be a bit of a decline in farmers who felt they sort of fully or roughly understood DEFRA's plans and vision for farming. And one of the criticisms has been that, you know, the sector's felt a little bit in the dark about what's coming. I mean, do your members feel like they understand the changes and sort of are they embracing them, I suppose, as well? Well, Joe, thanks. And thanks for the opportunity to, to be here today. I mean, I think Jonathan set out really well that this is massive. I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge remit to, to cover. And I think you make the point very well in, in the report that there is a real danger with the co-design um, basis of, of this work, that actually everybody ends up feeling disappointed on the back of that, whether that's environmentalists, farmers or, or consumers. So the pressure is is really on all of us to get this right, because it's, it is an exciting time and we've, we've got to make it work. But I think for farmers, they have felt in the dark on, on detail, which is becoming clearer all the time, and today will certainly help that. But it is about to having a, a profitable platform on which to base your business that you are going to get rewarded for those public goods that you are delivering and and that it doesn't create winners and losers. So obviously for us, you know, we represent upland farmers, we represent lowland, we represent arable, dairy, horticulture. So we are a, a very varied production system in the UK and incredibly lucky to be one because we've got a maritime climate. Um, which is extremely fortunate, particularly in the times that we're in now. So our farmers, I think farmers are really concerned. Um, Brexit was one thing, a global pandemic was another. And for me personally, now the war in Ukraine, I'd sort of long to be talking about no deal Brexit. And I, I can hardly believe I'm, I'm saying that. So these are times, extraordinary times that we've never been into before. And I think what Europe is doing at the moment, the changes to farm to fork, we're going to have to be agile to this situation. And um, Farmers want to know the detail. Um, there's still a lot of questions uh, to be answered. And don't forget, this is England only. I mean, that would be another concern I have. We are talking about England here on its own. Scotland and Wales doing something very different and Northern Ireland, again, doing something extremely different. So that, again, gives me cause for concern. You know, we want a, a common approach between the four countries. We don't want to create a, a divisive nature on that. And, and I think joined up government, finally, you know, trade deals, um, I, it's good Good to see government sticking to its its legislated targets on on nature on species but my goodness trade is in a very different place to where we started this conversation and we're going to be allowing uh, everything in here um, from australia and new zealand so that again is going to have impact on the viability and the profitability of farming businesses here in england 
Thanks, Jeanette. Um, you've covered loads of really interesting topics there, and many of which I want to come back to later, particularly about some of the sort of wider context affecting the sector and the reforms as well. Um, obviously, it sounds like you you have plenty of concerns as well as sort of opportunities that these reforms present. I mean, Becky, I'll come to you next. I mean, do the reforms that we're seeing, or the detail that we're seeing, does it do they meet your expectations in sort of conservation space from what you hoped for initially? You know, is the detail matching that ambition back from the sort of health and harmony white paper we had four years ago or so now? Yeah, I think it's uh, thanks. Thanks, Joe. I think it's a, it's a real kind of cure its egg at the moment, the situation we're in, and it's probably partly the phase we're at. But, um, you know, if I set a bit of kind of broader context beyond beyond the Brexit context um, for this, um, you know, we know that we've got a huge um, job on our hands in terms of trying to get onto a trajectory that that is effective for net zero you know and that's global and it's and it's obviously concerns the uk as well and um, we know that land has a really big part to play in that in terms of mitigation and adaptation we know that nature is in really really bad trouble i mean i don't have to rehearse some of the kind of species declines we're seeing now um uh, both in terms of birds insects you know other wildlife we know all the evidence is there um, and because farming, you know, concerns around about 70 percent of our of our kind of land, you know, more actually in England, that's a UK figure. You know, it's it's obvious we have to kind of join all this up if we're going to kind of uh, make progress on these huge issues. And they are huge food security issues as well as kind of uh, human survival issues. So, um, you know, we need to do something. And that's that's the overwhelming context for this. So I think, you know, in terms of your report, which I think is very good, you know, the assertion that kind of health and harmony um, and that original trajectory was somehow not quite right or a bit vague actually we support that trajectory i think that the rhetoric and the direction you know is absolutely right in terms of using um our, our land in a way that can meet all these um issues we've got to face into um but you know the the the, the issues and i would agree with minette on some of this you know the ambition is 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 it's is not necessarily there in some of the detail of these schemes we're kind of looking for more ambition in order to hit those targets um, I think the lack of clarity for farmers is an issue and kind of clearly the team is trying to balance uptake with kind of, you know, getting getting some of the details of these schemes right. And that's always going to be kind of problematic. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, we have these big targets that we've set ourselves in terms of um, the Environment Act. Um, and we have to be able to kind of make sure that this this implementation of that over overarching narrative is actually going to add up to hitting those targets and be really clear about the part it has to play. And I think that hasn't been set out clearly enough um, at the moment. So, you know, absolutely, we welcome that that over that that overarching narrative. But we think there's still quite a lot of work to do to get it right. And and I think certainly on things like trade, we would see ourselves as very much, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with Minette around needing to get that joined up thinking around things like trade to make this deliver in the right way. Great, thanks, Becky. Uh, really interesting points as well. Um, and Sue, I'm going to come over to you now. So it's picking up some similar points. I mean, you recently wrote a letter in the Guardian, I suppose, warning us not to pitch farmers against environmentalists and you know, seeing, you know, but basically, everyone needs to work together towards sort of a common vision. I mean, do you think the DEFRA's plans are sort of on track to 
help farmers do that? You know, are you sort of confident that we are heading in the right direction from that point of view? Thanks, Joe. Um, and like colleagues, I want to welcome your really excellent report, which raises some really important questions. Um, as, as everybody's already said, the, the the direction of travel set out in Health and Harmony was uh, really inspiring. Um, and in terms of, um, you know, have my expectations been met? I, I, I've, I've come to the conclusion that I think about that report in the same way as I think about my approach to parenting. I have high expectations, but I also have high tolerance that it can be really, really hard to do a good thing or, or make things work. And um, the, the, the shadow side, I suppose, of having an enormously ambitious and far reaching report like Health and Harmony is that it does raise expectations, but then it's all about delivery. You know, everything that follows on from that is about our capacity to deliver and therein lies the challenge. It, it was always thus in any you know, aspirational government policy. And I think um, the, the, te the team at DEFRA have been working so hard to bring um, more inclusive, more engaged, um, in even quite radical approaches to how these expectations can be delivered on the ground, how they can make them work. But they're also doing that in a really complex context of, um, of in other policy objectives too, in other departments. So, and, and I'm just reflecting on, um, in fact, what you were saying, uh, Jonathan, at the start, that um, leaving the European Union has given us more freedom. Freedom is a really slippery concept, isn't it? Because as soon as we realise, you know, as soon as we think we have freedom to do particular things in a different way, particularly big radical things like changing a, a global food system, we realise that, you know, tugging on a couple of threads over here starts unravelling a whole bunch of things over there. So that the, the idea that we have freedom to shape food and farming policy without really paying due regard to the implications on um, food pricing, on the rural economy, on trade policy, on health and well-being. It brings us back, I think, with um, you know a bucket of cold water that th those freedoms can only be delivered by an incredibly pragmatic, sleeves rolled up approach to understanding how how things really change on the ground and of course in that context you know government's thinking in those terms but farmers are thinking in those terms too so farmers are thinking what am i supposed to do right now to set me on a reasonable trajectory for right now but also the future of my business for five six seven ten twenty years into the future when the investment decisions they're making when the choices they're making right now have that kind of time frame so i think it we're, we're, we're occupying this really interesting you know interesting space here where the, the the expectations raised by an exciting and ambitious vision are absolutely going to be tested by our capacity to deliver and to deliver not just within DEFRA but across all the other departments who have a really critical interdependency on um, on those questions. Great, thanks Sue. Another really interesting answer. I mean, Jonathan, I'm going to come back to you and give you a sort of chance to respond to some of the things we've heard from the other panellists, but also within that sort of bit of a question as well. Um, I, mean, I think we've already touched on this, this idea that you know, the reforms have been sort of 
co-designed with stakeholders. You've been testing and trialing. You've been you know, this iterative approach to sort of working out what works, releasing information as you go. Um, I mean, many have praised that approach and you know, it seems to have worked you know, well in lots of areas. But I mean, is there a risk that that has also raised expectations? And now with all the details coming out, it's hard to sort of square the circle in, in that area. And um, yeah, also, if there's any points you'd want to sort of pick up from what we've heard from Becky, Minette and uh, Sue so far. So I, I think I think um, I don't mind. Well, this is I don't mind high expectations because people should have high expectations for the for the policy that the, the government are kind of putting in place. So so, so I think the the where the expectations or the kind of the shadow to use Sue's language of expectations become problematic is where um, is where people feel disenfranchised or they feel like they fed in uh, really strongly held views and they don't see them being taken forward. So that's the challenge that we're really seeing. So we've we've talked to uh, I think about 3000 people, the vast majority of which are farmers through our tests and trials. We've now got 940 odd um, uh, farmers in our sustainable farming incentive pilot. And we've got about we've got a kind of group of um, called a user panel where we can test specific ideas with around 700 farmers who volunteered to be involved in that. And then we've got all of the professional stakeholders who spent a huge amount of time and effort um, talking to us. So the, the challenge that we've got in that and then and feeding that in into a big governmental process within a department which is which is uh, delivering a kind of marquee kind of cross government policy, which has impacts which relate to Sue said on kind of health, but also trade. Number 10 have a keen interest. Treasury was spending an awful lot of money um, and it relates to an important sector. So I think where we. Where. Where we have. The inherent challenge that we found is having those really open conversations where, and about what we can do, feeding those things in through all of our tests and trials and those ideas. They then kind of get sucked into the into the government machine and then what comes out at the end, people can't see their fingerprints on it. And they, that's where the frustrations start to grow. So one of the things and we've, we've been learning for this is a fairly new approach for DEFRA and a fairly new approach for, for government. And one of the we've been learning through that. So some of the things that we've put in place to be much more communicative about what we're doing. So we've put in place our blog now, got about 200,000 hits on that in about 18 months. And we put out regular tests and trials updates. We have videos from farmers who are involved in the pilot so people can see that we're not absorbing some information it's just falling through the cracks but we're doing stuff with it we're feeding it back in and the the, the other thing that we've kind of learned which perhaps that sounds obvious when you say it is the need to set out and particularly with stakeholders to set out and farmers why things look like they look like so for example the sustainable farming incentive pilot as a stable farming incentive we're kind of building that out fairly small initially with a, a small set of standards and it will expand out over time it looks like that firstly because that de-risks delivery and we've learned a lot about risking delivery before the department so it's a it's a less risky delivery approach but also we're doing that partly because it has to work around our existing environmental scheme countryside stewardship and that we didn't communicate that clearly and everyone sort of put their hands up a bit and go well, what what's this what's this small thing you put forward because we hadn't explained the constraints and the decision making factors that that why why it looked like it looked like and how we how we, how we had fed that through to the process so that's the thing we're trying to get better at it and communicating and there are some really big trade-offs so people want the scheme to be really simple but equally farmers want it to be really well adapted to what they see as their very specific circumstances of their farm or the habitat they live and work in or the species that they manage people want things to be kind of quick and easy to run through but equally 
we've got our own challenges from an administration perspective. So there are these inherent trade-offs. What we need to get be even better at is communicating, these are the trade-offs that we're operating in, and here's why we've ended up where we've ended up. Because we've been treating people more like grown-ups. Like this, and I think that's we're we're we're, we're definitely trying to get through that process. But again, it's quite a difficult difficult discussion, especially when you're talking about such a, a broad community uh, of state of people with an interest in the program. Great, thanks, Jonathan. Um, really interesting to sort of hear the approach you've taken, and um, I think. Yeah, we've heard loads about the reforms and we sort of got a good sense of where we are with things and I think we've already started to flag quite a few of these sort of I suppose challenges that DEFRA must overcome to make a successful reforms and how DEFRA is approaching them so far. I mean one of the things I want to come to you first on Becky is I think you know a big part of making a success of these reforms will be making sure that farmers and land managers take part in the new schemes and we know that DEFRA has them sort of ambitious targets, particularly for sort of that entry level sustainable farming incentive to have high levels of uptake. But we also know that George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, is very keen on sort of the voluntary nature of the schemes. You know, he's not going to dictate what farmers and land managers should be doing. So, I mean, does that raise any cause concern for you about you know, making sure people take part? Does the government need to think about that differently at all? Um. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I think so. First of all, um, I should say that there are farmers already doing fantastic things for nature and the big win, the big win here is if we can find farming schemes that absolutely can work in harmony with nature. So that's kind of, you know, agroecology, kind of regenerative farming approaches, but basically, you know, doing doing farming in a way that can absolutely um, be alongside nature. That is the big win. And that's that's why when I talk about ambition, <laughs> you know, that local nature recovery um, uh, uh, bit of the three tier scheme, the middle tier is so important, you know, and, and at the moment, you know, we would have a slight concern that it's being matched maybe to the mid tier of countryside stewardship and actually could it be matched a bit higher, you know, could be there's nothing in it very clearly about pesticides, you know, we need to get something in there. So I think I think um, we absolutely think these, these these schemes need to be voluntary. Of course they do. You know, they need to be voluntary, but but let's make sure that we get the ambition of those of those tiers right. And let's make clear that if we are going to expand out or ratchet, as, as Jonathan suggests, which I think is a really kind of sound, sound um, idea, that we're clear about how we're going to do that and that we are going to do that. So that's that's the first thing to say. The second thing, though, is to say if we are going to make it voluntary, which we would absolutely support doing, let's think about the kind of the regulatory baseline as well. You know, there's, there's, there's never been yet that kind of really um, complete response to the Glen Stacey recommendations in that review. You know, so we need to kind of look at that enforcement and regulatory baseline as well. Um, and, and we need to be doing that pretty soon so that we've got clarity around that again by that 2024 sort of um, uh, milestone that we're heading for. So I think, again, it's about taking a holistic approach and kind of balancing all of that so that we have all the pieces of the jigsaw in place at the right time to make the kind of ambitious progress we need to make. Great, thanks, Becky. And thanks for raising that sort of regulation point as well, because I think, yeah, it does seem to be one area of reforms we've heard less about so far and one that I know people are very keen to get more detail on. I mean, so I know you wanted to come in here talking again about sort of uptake and making sure that, you know, everyone can be involved who wants to be involved. And I know that you know, one of the concerns that I think um, 
Dr. Ruth Little from University of Sheffield, who's done a lot of work in this space to sort of raising the report today is this sort of hard to reach groups or so-called hard to reach groups. So how to make sure that everyone can take part if they want to. So Sue, do you want to pick up anything on that? I think you're still on mute. Yeah, okay. I, I do think that is a really important um, uh, point to make. I think that the, the modern methods that the DEFRA team, that Jonathan's team has deployed with blogs, podcasts, so on, are great. But we have to remember that um, you know, as, as many as 30% of farmers are, are not you know, occupying that world. They're not on the internet. They may not even have decent rural broadband or, or um, uh, signals for smartphones, you know, strong enough signals for smartphones. Um, and, and it's not a world that they typically inhabit. So for this to be rolled out really effectively across the diversity of the farming landscape, we need we need different kinds of approaches. We need face to face approaches. We need we need teams going out to where farmers are and you know, going out to the, the agricultural shows is a good start. But things like you know, farmers markets, uh, feed merchants, you know, the, the, the everyday places where farmers go um, already is where you find the so-called hard hard to reach farmers and and also rec recognizing that um in all things and this isn't different we tend to hear advice from people we trust people who look like us who we recognize you know understand our world and understand our experience so it becomes really important i think to use farming ambassadors to talk to other farmers about the potential, the opportunity, the challenges, the tough stuff. There's been some brilliant work in Wales over the last 20 years, actually since the foot and mouth crisis, the Agriscope scheme, um, a whole series of small groups of farmers meeting around kitchen tables or farm gates or in barns to talk about the stuff that really mattered to them. That was everything from changing their business models through to succession, through to revitalizing their village communities. Those sorts of approaches are genuinely transformative. They tend to fly below the radar because they're not terribly glossy or glamorous or you know, lending themselves to um, you know, the, the, the so social media. But I think having that plurality of approaches that speak to the huge diversity of farmers in in farming is going to be critical. Great, thanks Sue. Um, looking at the questions, um, we're getting obviously lots of questions about sort of a broader picture, sort of how we use land, uh, how we deal with food security issues, uh, how do reforms interact with other bits of government policy. So I'm very keen to get onto those themes shortly. So Manette, I will come to you on some of that stuff very soon. But before I do, I do just want to come back to Jonathan and just pick up a point about um, a couple of points. One from the questions, which is sort of we're hearing you know, one of the questions is about how will the new reform sort of help deliver some of those envi big environmental cross-government environmental targets in the Environment Act and sort of how confident are you that you you're, you know that these reforms are going to deliver those ambitious targets that the government has. And another sort of question to you that I'm quite interested to pick up is we know that DEFRA doesn't have the best track record of delivering some of these big reforms in the past, particularly under the cap, you know, late payments, IT failings, problems that, you know, are well versed. Can you just tell us a bit about how DEFRA has tried to learn lessons from those past mistakes? Yeah, it's a good question. So, so on the on the delivery point, um, I think first so we're been very aware of that so I've been working on the programme for three years and I think the scars 
of previous delivery failures of being quite fresh and quite present. And in fairness to, to, to colleagues, it's something that's talked about regularly. So we've even even as recently as a kind of few months ago, we were still recirculating and doing show and tells about the lessons learned we did on um, a particular um, uh, kind of challenging IT program, which um, I think was CAPT, CAPT rather. So there's been a there's been quite a, an open kind of recognition that that's not been good enough. And and just to, to be to be open for the group, we, you know, we're still living through the implications of that. So we're not performing. We had a big up increase in countryside stewardship um, at the moment. We're, we're not performing as well as we'd like to in terms of getting those agreements out the door. So we're very aware of those delivery challenges and how important they are. This is these are voluntary schemes. We need them to work for farmers. The farmers that feel like we are a, a um, a partner that they can contract with reliably and confidently. So you definitely need to get, you know, that's uh, hugely important. So some of the things that we've done, and that's partly why we've got this more iterative kind of starting small building out model, uh, which we didn't have within the, the seven year program of, of the cap. It was quite, you know, uh, the king is, the cap is dead, long live the cap. So that every seven years it would turn off and a new one would, would turn on, which wasn't great for delivery and it partly exacerbated those delivery um, problems we had before. So this small starting small building out using existing IT, testing it. We're looking, so for example, for the local nature recovery, we're looking to do a kind of what we call a private beta, so fairly small scale with maybe 500 people really kick the pe kick it to death and work out how we can make it work before we start to bring lots of people in. So I think we've been very aware of those changes and we've brought in some excellent people from across government, you know, the kind of people from who deliver fantastic digital services. And actually that's something we're now we're doing with um with some other experts regularly. Um, we're also involved in the wider government. Um, we're a major project uh, for government, so we're involved in the wider ecosystem of project assurance, so the Prime Minister's Delivery Units, the IPA, Independent Project Authority, the major project review group come in and kick the tires on the programme really regularly as well as our own processes. So we're we're in a much better place and we're now at a kind of amber and increasing confidence um, delivery assessment, which is which is no small thing. There aren't that many major projects who are in that position. So in terms of confidence around helping delivery deliver the big targets, so I have kind of conditional, high, high degree of conditional confidence. I think from, a, from where we are looking forward, we can make these reforms are the best bet we've got for hitting those targets because farmers are so important and land use is so important to delivering those goals. Um, where it gets hard, where you have to recognise the uncertainty is the level of, of um, we know loads of farmers want to do these activities. We see lots of farmers doing them at the moment already. But uh, for an individual farmer and for a number of farmers who perhaps don't do that much at the moment, it is a change and there are a new set of skills and farmers have enough set of skills in their back pocket they need to have anyway. So I'm confident that it's the right approach to hit those targets where we have to recognise there is uncertainty and we need to put effort into is making sure the people who are going to be delivering this stuff firstly want to do it, so they need to be attractive to them. Secondly, they have the skills to do it, working with us and working with the rest of the supply chain and industry. Um, and then thirdly, we need to make sure that we're, we're delivering it well. But it's, it, you know, so it's the big difference here from previous reforms is um, agriculture policies is this is spending, you know, best part of two billion pounds through voluntary schemes for a, for, a, for a farming sector, which is hugely diverse in a whole number of ways. It, uh, it's no small, it's no small undertaking to, to, to get that level of change across such a diverse and uh, sector. Great, thanks a lot, Jonathan. Um, I'm going to turn now, you know, we talked a lot about sort of reforms and some of the things that need to work to make them happen, but I'm very aware that you know, 
zooming out a little bit and looking at sort of the context in which these reforms are happening. They've already happening in quite a turbulent period, you know, lots of changes happening as a result of Brexit, you know, in the free movement, new trade deals, new trade frictions with the EU, but also, you know, uh, you know, the development of a sort of net zero ambitions, lots of other things happening as well. And then more recently, you know, soaring inflation, the impact of the war in Ukraine, which will affect, you know, global commodity prices and food production as well. So there's a lot happening. Um, and Manette, I just wanted to come to you first, really, to, I mean, get a sense of what conditions are facing your members at the moment, sort of what climate are these sort of changes taking place in? And I know that you know the government is announcing various measures today to help with the cost of fertilizer. You know, do they go far enough? Or as you I think you mentioned earlier, you know, the EU has introduced some reforms or pro proposed reforms to temporarily allow bits of land set aside for the environment to be brought into production. Some bigger changes like that. Do you think the government needs to go further than it has so far? Joe, thanks for that. I mean. Uh, to be honest, who knows? Because the the world really hasn't seen something like this happen before. And I don't think anybody should be under the wider illusions of the regime in Russia looking to destabilise global food security. You know, we know North Africa doesn't have enough grain to get to the next harvest. We know there are massive implications with very fragile economies that are totally reliant on Ukraine and, and Russia. Um, so that's that's a big issue. So it does mean that wealthy nations have got to make every effort that they can to feed themselves. And when you've got a climate like ours, you know, we should be making sure that we are producing our own milling wheat. And the real danger right now across every single sector is that we see double digit contraction because that is the only way at the moment of farmers shoring up their risk. And that doesn't matter whether it's eggs whether it's going from producing milling wheat, winter planting to spring planting. If you make that decision to go to spring planting, you can halve your input costs. You know that feed prices are going to be very buoyant for the foreseeable future. So those, those are the dangers, Joe. And if I look at the protected crop sector, you know, you've already got the Netherlands saying they're not going to be exporting cucumbers. We know that production is down here on cucumbers, on tomatoes, on peppers. There's the implications of labour on that for growers. There's the implications if you go from 63p per therm of gas to what we saw a couple of weeks ago, which is £6 per therm, then the, the safest way is to contract. And this is what I was saying to George Eustace, the Secretary of State, yesterday. You've got to give farmers the confidence and, and three things right now, really. Make food security an absolute national priority. We need to really know how much gas we are using from literally farm to fork. I mean, there are four billion lives in this world that are reliant on nitrogen fertilizer. We all want to get to the world of net zero, but at this moment in time, nitrogen fertilizer is pretty key to producing bread as a short example. So we need that. We also need, and I'm delighted that George Eustace has committed to enhancing the role of the market management core group to bring in experts across the industry to look at you know how we intervene when we intervene what is coming down the road towards us that's vital and then potentially there will be other things that need to happen but you know fertilizer over a thousand pounds a ton you know many people will be looking at it and saying it's unaffordable so liquid milk the dairy industry you know we're already four percent down what does this look like for 2023 we've got to plan ahead or we will have real serious problems so planning ahead i think we can do it but as i said in the beginning joe we've got to be agile to this 
Great, thanks, Minette. That's really helpful. I'm just going to put this question to you briefly, but then come to others on the panel. I mean, we've had a couple of questions, including one from Daniel Zeitner, MP. Basically, ministers have been quite clear that they don't think that the reforms to agricultural support or removal of direct payments introducing of these new schemes should have a major impact on sort of domestic food production per se, but it's compatible with sort of similar levels of domestic food production. I mean, are your concerns, do you have concerns, I suppose, about the reforms and the impact they may have on uh, food production? Or are your concerns, you know, more about that sort of broader, you know, cost pressures, inflation, impact on global supply chains, all of those issues? Well, look, one, one thing that we all understand is regulation equals cost, legislation equals cost. And when I look at where we are in the global market on um, affordability of food, you know, we're third to the US and Singapore. So we've got the most affordable food in, in the world here. And that's because of the dominance and power of the retailers and, and that savage price war that we live with. So I guess my biggest worry is how do we shore up our risk and how do we deal with volatility going forwards? And if I look at the US model, um, you have a totally different form of competition law. They can intervene in any area of the market. We cannot discuss price. You know, we would have the CMA ripping through the building and, and chucking us all out. So we can't discuss price. And there are real big issues about that because everybody at the moment has, has got to play their part in this journey. And government's got a massive role in saying to all of retail, come on, guys, we've got to work together. You know, how are we going to do this? Because if we don't plan for it, it's going to be really, really tough. So going forwards, how we manage our risk and how we deal with volatility is the unanswered question. And what direct support did was give farmers, because don't forget, two thirds of, of the UK is less favoured area. That has been supported really since pre-First World War because it's been about a social good. Now, if we don't want farmers in these very, very challenging parts, we need to be really, really honest with them. And this is a key thing across government be really honest with these guys because these are real people and these are real lives that we're dealing with and we cannot just keep saying life is going to be so much better now we've left the EU you know I keep on being told trade is going to be so much better well actually it, it's it's not in some cases it's going to be a lot tougher but that's not for me to say that's for government to say so let's be honest with farmers let's recognize that regulation and legislation costs a lot of money and let's find a way of managing our risk because risk is here to stay and Ukraine is a game changer. Thanks, Minette. Um, Becky, I'm just going to come over to you now because I know that you know, part of this debate that we've had recently about you know, food security that's come up quite a lot, you know, there's this sort of cause from some to you know, scale back some of these environmental ambitions to focus more on production. I mean, are you concerned that sort of the political mood music might turn against reforms? I mean, you know, after all, you know, I think the government itself has acknowledged you know, decline in nature is the sort of biggest mid to long term threat to food security. So, I mean, are you concerned that we might be sort of risking being a bit short sighted given the sort of wider pressures that are going on at the moment? Yeah, I think there's been I think there's been some um, unfortunate rhetoric around kind of plough baby plough. You know, it's kind of I, I think that's that's unfortunate because um, food security is absolutely a massive issue. You know, I couldn't agree with Minette more. Um, but, you know, the UK government produced a report in 21 that said, you know, uh, actually the big issues around food security are, you know, climate change, loss of nature and depletion of soils. 
you know, so that, those are the long term issues. I absolutely accept we've got some kind of short term issues because of, you know, the, the big the big um, uh, conflict situation um, in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, I think we will need to make some short term interventions. And today is an example of that. But ultimately, we've got to move away from having um, this massive kind of chemical input in order to produce food. And I think it's it's interesting if you look at something like um, uh, Dimblebee's, um, you know, food report, you know, and we're hoping that we'll get the kind of white paper coming on the back of that, you know, as soon as possible. It takes it takes a kind of a more holistic view of that whole food system and really looks at all the all the elements of that system. So including kind of, you know, diet around the world and the impact that has, including things like, you know, the kind of crops we grow and where we grow them, you know, that it's it's a, it's a much bigger issue. So I think we've got to balance you know, the short term implications of what's going on in Ukraine um, and, and kind of facing into that and helping farmers through those kind of short term implications. But we've got to keep that long term situation around food security in mind. If we don't if we don't get our soul, our soils into better heart, you know, if we don't kind of worry about nature and our pollinators, you know, we've, we've ultimately got some really, really big issues on our hands. And so I would just kind of um, say that I would agree with Jonathan in what he said earlier in that I think you know elms and the kind of way in which that builds these tiers for all that we might criticize parts of it it has to be the way we go in terms of securing food into the long term great thanks becky that's uh, really really helpful um sue i'm just going to turn to you on a uh, sort of picking up some of the themes we've heard from Annette and becky but also just some of the questions um that we've got in from the audience uh and some of the things i know the sort of Food Farming and Countryside Commission have looked at as well about this sort of various pressures on land use I suppose so you know, we've talked a lot about farming obviously today and agriculture and how that needs to be reformed and making sure you know, can do it in a more environmentally sustainable way but agriculture is only one of the pressures on land you know, we're seeing renewed pressures to you know use more land for renewable energy or that sort of solar farms and renew uh, onshore wind obviously sort of ongoing housing crisis and pressures on land for housing, you know, climate change mitigation, you know, flood, flood risk management, all of these sort of pressures on land. I mean, you know, do you, are you confident that the government seems to have a clear sense of how it wants land to be used or how, the, how it sees agriculture sort of fitting into that bigger picture of land use? And I know you've sort of previously called for sort of land use strategy or framework. Um, do you think something like that would be helpful? Well, yes, I do. C can I rather cheekily just come back to the the, um, the topic that Manette and Becky were both touching on there, which is about yes, price, and price and affordability, because I do think it's worth um, bottoming that out a little bit more. And I will happily come back to land use in a second. But um, Manette was saying it's really difficult to talk about price. We have to talk about price and we have to talk about where the money is in the food system, because at the moment we seem to be setting this up as a kind of zero sum game between farmers and environmentalists um, and that is that that is a real error uh, in my view there are um there are other players in this system who have a really significant role to play right now the processors and the retailers um, and when we're thinking really hard about um, how um, increasingly scarce commodities are going to be used in order to um, ensure that people don't um, face increasing hunger and hardship 
or impacts on their health and well-being through ending up buying cheap junk food, that is exactly the place where government can take a systems view across government departments and choose to bring in processors and retailers in these really tough questions. So you might ask, for example, do we really need, you know, aisles and aisles of, you know, sweetened biscuits, you know, produced by multiple processors, producers and retailers? Or might we decide to concentrate those um, those commodities in producing really good value, cheaper, healthy, nutritious food that is easily available for everyone everywhere? So that that there. I think that it is important to talk about food and pricing and indeed waste and you know, how we consume food at the moment in the country and in, in, in the taxonomy that you use in your report, which as I say, I, I love. Um, I was a, um, a, a bit disappointed that we ended up sticking with the notion of consumer and not citizen, because when, when we position people as consumers, it, it we, we end up narrowing our um, narrowing our interests but when we think of ourselves as citizens with equivalent interests in you know the price of food the price of but but also um that our, our environment and our you know rural communities um, and the quality of our economy it, it invites us to make some different decisions so sorry sorry to sneak that one in but i do think it's important to fold fold that into the debate it's not just a zero-sum argument between farmers and environmentalists we all have a part to play in working out what kind of food system we want in the future. So back back to land use, absolutely. We think that um, a similar kind of openness, transparency um, and inclusiveness needs to um, be, be brought together around issues of, of land use, but also land use decision making. You know, we, we've said in our reports that for for the UK's land to deliver all the aspirations that various government government departments have on it. We need two and a half times the land area that we currently have. So we need to think about how we mediate some really, really complex um, decisions on land and land use for food, for energy, for housing, for infrastructure, for carbon sequestration, and of course, for nature to flourish. I'm actually really encouraged at the moment, not, not least because um, you know, practically every week I'm reading another report which is calling for a land use framework, a process for better quality decisions about land and land use um, across England, or in, indeed across across the UK. And I'm very encouraged that um, the Lords have, have commenced their special inquiry. We're going to be giving evidence to that next week. I know Minette's already given evidence to it. And, and I, it's, it's opening up the debate which again, like this debate, is complex, multifaceted. It reveals for us, when we start looking carefully at it, it reveals for us all of the interconnections and interdependencies that we just have to take into account if we're going to make some of the transformative policy changes that we're talking about in food and farming, but also for climate, for nature, for health and well-being, for a flourishing countryside. Great. Thanks, Sue, and thank you for covering off all of those points. Um, Jonathan, I'm going to give you a chance to come back in now um, on a, a couple of different points, uh, picking up some of the questions, but also uh, some of the things we've just heard. I mean, one, I suppose, coming back to some of the points that Minette raised, um, are you sort of confident that the sort of plans, the reforms planned 
are flexible enough basically to, to sort of cope with these external pressures that are being put on them and the sort of shift in debate. You know, are you confident that you know, basically they are going to be able to be delivered despite these pressures? And I think we also got a question that I'd quite like to put to you, which is basically, I suppose, picking up some of these points that Sue was touching on about sort of the you know, cross-government nature of many of the sort of policies that affect farming and the natural environment is this sort of idea of has DEFRA done much sort of cumulative analysis I suppose of the combined impact of not only the reforms you're making here but of you know trade policy in other areas of other environmental policies and other parts of DEFRA you know so that we can see sort of exactly what the impact on the sector and the environment in yeah. England is supposed to be of all of these changes together. Yeah, so on the flexibility within the reforms, I think we, that's we have we have a significant flexibility. We're seeing that already. So the announcement which we put out today in advance of the growing season about um, some of the ways in which we can help farmers, particularly with nutrient availability and kind of respond to the wider context. That's much easier within the policy that we've got, and we initiated that in response to the situation, made sure that we we landed that, and we pulled pulled those strands together into a fairly coherent package which is helpful but as pick up on the next point is nowhere that's not the end of the conversation so we're, we're still tracking the the impact in the short medium and long term so that we're able to adapt and respond we do have significant ability to to, to respond so we've got that how how when we prioritize our grants how when we prioritize which bits of our schemes we bring forward while we're still bringing things forward we are able to adapt and respond to the respond to those uh, circumstances. So we know we spent about twenty million pounds in the last two years. I think helping farmers invest in more efficient use of inorganic fertilisers and transition to organic fertilisers. So that's an area we can look to push further. So we've we've announced today some further investment in the slurry grants, which is really important from an environmental perspective. We're still focused on that, but also uh, in terms of those food producing businesses, how they can um, respond and make better use of the nutrients that they're generating. So there is a high degree of, of ability to adapt. The, the challenge there is that we've got our legally, not a challenge, but rather the, the thing we need to be mindful of and the way we bounce up the decision making is in the constraints of the, so within the, the kind of ambitions we've set ourselves from the net zero and from an environmental target perspective and kind of keeping those those um, kind of North Stars in mind. I mean, and that comes back to Sue's points around the land use framework and kind of decision making. I guess that folds into your question, Joe, about kind of cumulative ana analysis. So we do, my team regularly are looking at what are the impact of these things taken across across the package of reforms. So we've, um, from the trade perspective, we're very uh, strongly working with our the sector teams who lead on the individual sectors to look through the impact of those trade reforms. We can touch on this further, but we have, we have um, secured some changes which are driven or based around the fact the agricultural transition is live and we need to some extent to be uh, that is itself a significant set of changes for the farming sector and that other changes around trade impact and trade liberalisation which the government wants to take forward need to build around that and not to be not to be adversely affecting that so we've looked at the liberal at the phase the phasing of that liberalisation and those reforms and we're also trying to look at what the proactive export opportunities are for a more um, subsidy free farming sector to, to make the benefits of those so we are trying to find those we are finding those join ups and those opportunities um, and then I think so that's from on the kind of sectoral impact and kind of food security perspective we're also looking at and that's where the land use framework comes in we're not using it in a we with 
going a fair way through the way that Sue described in terms of thinking about decision making and how things operate and how they balance off food security, food production, farmer impact, land use, environmental outcomes in a way. And we recognise that land is, is, a, is, a, is where a lot of those conversations, a lot of those decisions kind of land. So we've worked really hard to work to, to work out what's the total quantum of land use change that we're looking to deliver. How can we maximise that? How can we squeeze where we are delivering land use change, really squeeze uh, multiple benefits out of it? And that's why we see a strong focus around woodland planting, not so much in terms of really hard, fast growing, net zero carbon gobbling trees, but trying to focus in a more broad, broad acre because we've seen biodiversity benefits, we've seen water quality benefits, and we know farmers, frankly, are more likely to want to take them on. We've shifted our focus to smaller um, parts of woodland because again that's where landowners and farmers are more happy to respond and adapt and that's where the changes are so we're looking again what the opportunities that we've got there so we are we are trying to particularly for the prism of land making sure we're balancing up those food security land use change environmental outcomes net zero we are we are thinking about that uh, and trying to be some proactive like strategic um uh, decision making so we're getting the maximum bang for the for the land that we've got available Thanks a lot, Jonathan. We are very close to time, but um, we have covered a huge amount of topics. What I wanted to do very quickly, and I will need all of you to be very snappy in your answers, is I wanted to end on sort of a relatively sort of constructive note. So I was going to ask each of uh, Sue, Minette and Becky for sort of something of optimism in the reforms, what sort of something that is making you feel optimistic at the moment, and then maybe your key message to Jonathan about what the government will definitely need to think about. So I'll start with you, Minette. Thanks very much, Joe. Uh, look, <clears throat> there is there is a massive opportunity. And as I said at the beginning, we can't afford to fail. To my mind, if, if we get the sustainable farming incentive right, and I mean really right, I accept Jonathan's points on needing to start small and build bigger, but we have an uh, we have an absolute pressing need globally to transform and lead climate smart agriculture. If we get that bit right, um, then the ability on top of that, so you have your food, your fiber, your green energy as your platform alongside delivering for the environment and nature. And then on top of that, as you stack up, and this is, I think, the exciting bit that DEFRA are talking about now is effectively the ability for public and private finance to come together. You know, we've got to get much more resource landing into the ground. We can't just keep relying on public money to deliver on all of this. And it is our time, you know, biodiversity, water quality, carbon credits, green finance, ESG, those monies are circulating above our heads. So be able to de develop new trades that are farmer owned, farmer led, that drive genuine investment back into doing the job on biodiversity and water quality. That, to my mind, is the future. But, you know, it's got to be profitable for farmers, but most importantly, it's got to be equally profitable for the land and doing the job that's needed on nature. Great. Thanks, Minette. Becky, I'll come to you now. Yeah, so fundamentally, if we can't get this farming reform right, we will lose nature. You know, we will lose we will lose the fight because it's it's that essential. So, you know, I, I think that my 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 optimism comes from that overarching trajectory that I talked about at the beginning and those kind of North Star goals around, you know, um, farm business resilience, food security, the nature and climate crisis, you know, and I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, my, my, my advice <laughs> to DEFRA should be 
choose to hear it would be absolutely we need to get that kind of land use framework work done um, and you know we're doing quite a lot of work on that ourselves at the RSPB at the moment I think it's it's going to drive some hard choices so we need to be face into that and be honest about that um, and I think you know my second bit of advice would be just making sure that we hang on to um, the ambition in the tiers, particularly that middle tier is absolutely crucial. So let's get let's get that that leveling of that that middle tier right and its implementation right as well, so that all farmers feel that they can play a part in that and actually get us on that kind of that good trajectory. Great. Thanks, Becky. And Sue, I'm going to put you on the spot because I'm going to get told off for going over. So very, very quickly, your last. Super conference. quick, super quick. I'm optimistic uh, when I meet the growing number of young farmers, younger farmers who really want to be a force for change, who really want to be part of the solution and are in, as engaged in this topic as any of us are. The other, and my bit of advice would be we must engage citizens broadly across this conversation. I see more citizens more interested in the implications of what we're talking about here. We have to bring citizens in because without uh, the backing of citizens, we won't have the license to make these really critical system wide changes that we need to make. Great. Thanks a lot, everyone. Um, that's it. We are now out of time. Thank you to my panel for uh, giving us a real whistle stop tour of all of the changes affecting agriculture and the natural environment at the moment. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Sue, Minette, Becky, and Jonathan. If you've uh, enjoyed this event and would like to watch it again, a recording will be available on our website and YouTube channel shortly. And please do check out our report, uh, Agriculture After Brexit Replacing the Cat, which you can find on our website. Um, I hope you all have a very nice morning and hopefully see you again on another IFG live event soon. Thank you. Goodbye.